Bubble Tea with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the Robohub podcast. In today's episode, we take a closer look at the effect of novelty on human-robot interaction. Novelty is the quality of being new or unusual. The typical view is that while something is new or a novelty, it will initially make us behave differently than we normally would. But over time, as the novelty wears off, we will likely return to our more regular behaviours. For example, a new robot may cause a person to behave differently initially as it's introduced into the person's life, but after some time, the robot maybe won't be as exciting and novel and motivating and the person would return to their previous behavioural patterns, interacting less with the robot. To find out more about the concept of novelty in human-robot interactions, our interviewer Audro caught up with Katarina Smedegard, a PhD student at Aarhus University in Denmark, whose field of study is philosophy. Katarina sees novelty differently to how we typically see it. She thinks of it as projecting what we don't know onto what we already know, which has implications for how human-robot interactions are designed and researched. She also speaks about her experience in philosophy more generally and gives us advice on philosophical thinking. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Hi. Would you introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Katharina Smilgo, or Smedegard in international. Um, I am from Aarhus University at Denmark. I'm a PhD student and I am affiliated with the group of Integrated Social Robotics which is uh, run by Johanna Seidt, my supervisor. Um, I'm a philosophy student and, yes, very excited to be working with the HRI world. Would you tell me a bit about your background? Yes. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a philosophy uh, student through and through. I've, I have a bachelor in philosophy and a master's in philosophy as well. I've had two years of subsidiary subject on psychology. Uh, where I really got interested in this um, philosophical take on the empirical sciences and, and also all kinds of research involving humans and humans responding and reacting. I love that from a philosophical point of view. Um, and it wasn't really in the cards that I was going to be a PhD student, but I had this really amazing um, professor called Johannes Seidt, who... Um, was in the in the HRI world and who uh, nudged me to see if I might find that interesting as well. So I got an internship for half a year at her project, and I found the sub the subject from a master's thesis, and I've been working on that ever since, and and got the PhD position as well in that project, and it's been just the best chance happening in the world. Yeah. Uh, so would you tell me a bit about the work? that you presented here first like a high level and then we'll get into the argument yeah well very mainly I, I presented um, like an advocation for the need to address novelty effects within social HRI research I think we should also do it in HRI but my arguments are not fitted to the general world of HRI because I focus on social robotics mm-hmm. right now um, but yes, we all know what novelty effects are, and we all, to some extent, take them into account. But it's uh, sort of I mean, like what are they? 
Even small. novelty effects. Yeah. Well, in the traditional understanding, sure. we we think of novelty effects as like um, responses, human responses, um, on the account of something being novel to them in the research environment, uh, where they usually it's usually very like either exploratory or avoidance behavior. So like if people are extra excited, approaching, or extra afraid, or you know avoiding things, and and it's sort of like. We nor- well, in most methodological literature, for example, it gets like three lines and it's just, you know, take into account that people might, you know, respond to being in the research situation as a new kind of thing. So, you know, they need to be customized to the situation and then, you know, they might be extra excited about the experiment. So, you know, do mm-hmm. it, do it twice or something. And that's, that's not, that's not the full story. I think it's, it's a shame that that's how mm-hmm. it's, it gets attention right now. Gotcha. So currently it's basically that people, when they're in a new situation, behave in a way that's not consistent with how they will behave if they were exposed to it all the time. Yeah, but see, already there, that's not completely true because um, what, what you said there kind of implies that we have like a true nature. Ah. So, and then when we meet something novel, it sort of distorts our true nature. Yes. But the point of novelty is that we are meeting something where we haven't even established what our true, in, in quotation signs, mm-hmm. marks, what our true nature will be in the future. So, so there isn't anything behind the novelty effect, so to speak. We're just, we're grasping mm-hmm. for it's sense. It's new territory. Exactly. And we're trying to relate it to something we already know. Yes, exactly. That that is my uh, hypothesis. So, huh. so when we meet something that we can't, this is basically the definition of novelty that I have. That um, novelty arises as an experience when we encounter something that we cannot make sense of solely in terms of what we already know. Mm-hmm. So you know, most of the time we're walking around in the environments that we are in the situations and engaging with the world through where where the knowledge that we have about the world is enough, you know? We don't question everything like, is this a chair? Can I really sit in it? We just sit in it because we can see that it's a chair. And we eat food because we know it's food. And, you know, we go into a workplace and we take the bus and, and, and we talk to people and it's like, it's not... I'm I'm hesitant to say scripted because that that would sound like we're mindless blobs just walking around and we're not of course we're just using our mental capacities to think about other things than just interacting with the environment most of the The time. The familiar environment. Exactly because we can rely on our knowledge about it but then sometimes we meet something that we cannot rely on our knowledge Mm -hmm. to interact with and you know it's it's very small things you know for example just being in South Korea for me is like can I really eat this? Is this food? Like yeah. you say it is, but it doesn't look like it. Yeah, and for it doesn't me, look like food I've had. yeah, exactly. And 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 that's just a an, an <laughs> abruption, like in in the in the somewhat automated reliance on my knowledge. Mm-hmm. So I need to explore. Well, I need at least I need to gather information that my that I do not have already in order to determine what I will be doing with this piece of food. Will I eat it or will I not? Well, maybe I will take a small bite. <laughs> and that would be like in the very... In the very... Um, that would be exploratory behavior, of course. I don't... Um, 
it's a very simplistic way of saying it, but yes, I would mm-hmm. be exploring, I would be gathering information, so to speak. I would readily say, okay, let's find okay. out something. I could also just avoid it. I could just put it down and say, I don't uh-huh. want to interact with this. Okay. I don't and, want to know more. And then how does this relate to human-robot interactions? Well, um, my theory is that, that social robots... And again, I stress the social here because that's what the what the argument so far is 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 targeted against. Social robots present us with something that well, it provokes the way that we understand the world because we have this fundamental understanding about things and live things or animals and, and humans. Mm-hmm. So we have things that are alive and things that are not alive. Mm-hmm. It's a very fundamental way of looking at the world, and we know that things that are alive follow these kinds of rules. And we know that things are not alive follow these kinds of rules. So when we see, well, the idea is still social robots. They, they're not really that hard to see through yet. But, you know, at some point, I think mm-hmm. we will start to see robots that we're just really puzzled by because we can't see it as a thing, because it doesn't behave like a thing. But we can't see it just as a human or as an animal because that really that really um gotcha. so it doesn't fit our expectations exactly so we need knowledge here because it, it, it means that we can't rely on what we know about the world we can't gotcha. make predictions for so example it's outside of our existing knowledge exactly so we can't rely on it exactly and and when i say existing knowledge or you said it but that's yeah. totally correct <laughs> um but it can both be the knowledge that i have as a person like i can't rely on that it can also be collectively because i also think that novelty effects can happen like on a collective uh, on a collective level of, of for example, society. Mm. Um, like, because whenever we interact with society, you know, we have these roles and we have our, our institutions and we have our culture and, and we're constantly sharing knowledge and enacting some types of knowledge. And, and robots right now don't have a role. Social robots ha- don't have a role and they will eventually be introduced. So we as a community or as a society need to to reinvent some parts of our society as well to make mm-hmm. room for them. And that means that we also have to revise our cultural knowledge, so to speak, sometimes. Yeah. Um, and and that's what makes, what makes them novel, because we can't rely on the knowledge that we have, either as individuals or as a society. Mm-hmm. So we need to generate new knowledge in order to know how we want to, or we should, or we would prefer to respond to them and interact with them. Mm-hmm. And that is novelty. That is novelty. So, what is this like? So, unpacking this, or will you take me through kind of the arguments of your talk yesterday? So, yes. okay, so we've talked a bit about what novelty is. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> well, um, one of the, one of the main implications of my definition of novelty, um, because well, the traditional the traditional understanding of novelty effects again is is that they're noise, you know, they're distorting from our true responses, so to speak. And again, my my account is more that, well, they're actually indicating that there are no true responses. So mm. this is as good as it gets right now. We are making sense as we go right now. Um, and also, um, this indicates that novelty effects don't necessarily fade away, as we normally would assume. 
Hmm. Like we always say, novelty effect fade away, and then we see the true responses. Like they've been there all the time. Yeah. Um, but when we are learning, yeah. like you're right. When you put it that way, it seems silly to phrase it the first way. Exactly. Exactly. Because what has been there all the time? Um, My true know. nature of interacting with a exactly. robot. Well, no. I think some people would think that we have an innate nature, of course. So we could Maybe. take that discussion sometime. Yeah. Of course, that's a that's a that's another a path discussion. to go down. Exactly. Um, but. Novelty effect means generating meaning. We're learning right now. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're exploring meaning, um, which means that sometimes, you know, we, we I use the word strategy. Uh, I use it in a very intuitive sense because I haven't really been, been I don't know enough about sense-making strategies mm-hmm. enough to refer to any kind of specific theory here. Okay. Exactly. But, but we are using some kind of strategy when we want to interact with something that we don't know. Okay. And sometimes, for example, again, with the example of, of me eating Korean food, mm-hmm. um, I took the strategy of exploring it, so I took a small bite of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe I found out that it tastes good. I can eat it. So I ate the whole thing. And then what started out as a novelty response, which is me eating a small bite, actually becomes consolidated into, you know, hey, I can I can interact with this item or thing in this way that is eating it. Mm-hmm. So I will continue to do so. And, you know, in case of food, that doesn't really seem that, you know, significant or radical or like, okay, yeah, you food, that's... <laughs> Tried it before you eat wow, it. Wow, yeah, yeah, exactly. But when it comes to robots, for example, that is... I think a very important takeaway that if we people make sense with what they have, like so, okay, um, I can't rely on my knowledge, but I have to use what knowledge I have in trying to cope with this that I don't know. So I'm going to respond to it as a human, mm-hmm. as it as if it was a human, for example, like anthropomorphize yeah. it. Then I find out that this actually works for me because it responds to my to my anthropomorphization, oh. uh, and it reduces my anxiety or uncertainty, and I can make predictions about its behavior if I ask it to go into the corner. Well, it does, and that's what humans do or animals do, at least you know. So it makes sense to me, and so I'm just I'm going to keep on anthropomorphizing this this thing because mm-hmm. it makes sense to me, and then. Uh, again, a response, the anthropomorphization that was uh, activated in novelty, in face of novelty, could become um, consolidated into your normal responses. Well, normal, but in quotation marks, um, but into your future responses to this agent again, because you found out that it works. But the quest, so, you know, we can't really just say, for example, in research of HRI, we'll just wait till it fades away, because sometimes it really doesn't. And then we'll see people continuing to anthropomorphize. The point here is then that we can't really just conclude then that's what we should do with robots. We mm-hmm. should anthropomorphize them because we haven't really explored if we could interact with them in any other kind of way that would make sense, but maybe without the ethical repercussions of anthropomorphizing something that is not human. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. I'm just saying we need to have that discussion yeah. before we just accept that. Can you give me an example of... Anthropomorph- or basically the novelty effect not fading away mm-hmm. in an interaction with a robot. Oh, yeah. Um, that is the novelty effect not fading away. Well, I always go to anthropomorphism because it's so, it's so easily understandable. Um, is that an example of this? 
Yeah, when you see like people anthropomorphizing, that's like if they do but that, it because. But they the need... novelty effect, the novel. Oh, so okay, with your definition. So let me see if I understand. Mm-hmm. So the novelty effect in this sense is that we don't know how to treat a robot because we have non-living things and we have living things. Mm-hmm. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of cluster it with one of them. If it seems pretty good, like a good robot, then we'll cluster it with living. But we've never really learned to treat it as its own instance of thing, which is separate from non-living and living. Yeah. Is that correct? Yes. So that's why anthropomorphism is an example of this novelty effect of it not be. fading. Like, for example, Epley and colleagues, and I don't remember when, 2006, 2007, like, came with a seminal paper where they say that anthropomorphism is either activated by a need for effectance, which is a need for, you know, being efficacious in interacting with your environment so you need to be able to make predictions about it and you need to be able to um, mm, navigate in it and understand other agents actions and these things and right? what you can do with things and exactly kind of things. and and the other need is need for sociality that we need uh, social interaction so and if we look at anthropomorphism brought on by the need to master our environment or need to understand our social environment um, that would be a response to novelty because we're using knowledge about one thing in order to understand something that we know is not this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the best we've got. Yeah, it's the closest thing. Exactly. And that would be a novelty response because you know it's not. You don't have the right knowledge to understand it. But you're using the best knowledge, the knowledge that is most close to you in understanding it. Is there any... just? maybe a digression but is there anything in people that makes it seem like we go to like it's almost binary it's, it is or it is not mm-hmm. it's alive or it's not mm-hmm. is there any like it it rarely seems like we have three classes of things um, or more yeah is there is there any reason why people wouldn't create like a, this is a robot I'm interacting with class it's not quite alive it's not quite dead well I'm not saying they're not I'm not yeah. Saying that they're not, but I think. Oh yeah, I know. But I in think, our learned responses, mm-hmm. there is the alive and there inanimate and animate. Exactly. So far, if we look at, at at how the how the ontological categories yeah have been divided, that's that that's very basic two categories. Like yes, it very binary. We have the natural the and the artificial. We have the alive and the not alive. Yeah. We have there's the these. us. There's the them. Exactly. It's not like they're partially us. No, exactly. It's but but maybe outsider. they could be, you know, and that's that's yeah. that's kind of the the thing that I want to get at that just because it's been us and them or or alive and not alive for um yeah, <laughs> basically ever. Um it doesn't mean that it have to be because we're in we're we're dealing with a category of things or objects or agents. Mm-hmm. That may be both. We don't know. We, yeah. Also, in 50 years, we could conclude, yeah, we thought it was this big thing, but it wasn't. And, and oh, that's fair enough. But right now, we don't know, and that's the promise of novelty. We don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, you know, with, with, with HRI research, instead of just concluding that people treat a robot in this way, so we should keep making robots that afford this kind of treatment, mm-hmm. we should ask ourselves, well, why don't we... Why don't we utilize this promise of something in between? Why don't we try to make something that is not made in our picture, but not a thing either? Mm-hmm. Why don't why why don't we research or investigate how this could be? Could we like 
Could we provoke people to think in a different way? Because of course, we always, humans, we always respond from what we know. Of course, we always rely on the knowledge that we already have in order mm -hmm. to respond to the world. Sometimes we do it without thinking because it's so easy. Sometimes we're getting challenged and that's novelty, but we still do because we can't really do anything else. Um, and, and we want, you know, safety and we want to be, again, effective in our way mm -hmm. of understanding the world. And which just means that we need sort of like a small push to to go in another direction than we would like um, have gone otherwise. Um, does that make sense? Could you explain a little more? Yeah. It's like, for example, um, I always take the same way home from work. I know I shouldn't because, you know, Alzheimer's is prevented by always taking you past blah, blah, blah. But I like to take the same road home <laughs> from work because I have a feeling that it's quicker. I've talked to my husband about it and it's not quicker. We've looked at a map and there is another map and it's like... A better way. Yeah. But anyways. Yeah, 200 meters shorter. So you have your... But way. I still have this oh, idea meters. that it's this is the way. It's because I've already... I've always done this. This is a comfortable walk yeah. for me. I do it. So you need to push to get on a... You mean humanity needs to push to get on a different track. Sometimes, so. yes. Because right now, what path I take probably doesn't matter in the bigger picture really. But the way that we are interacting with robots right now, the way that we're teaching people, like not intentionally, but we are inadvertently teaching people to interact with them when we're setting up research designs and, and framing situations and making promo material, we are teaching people because we're giving them sense-making cues. You know, you should make sense of it in this way. Um, and when we're doing that, I think we should, we should really think about and ask ourselves what kind of path we want people to take in the future. Uh, you know, what, what path is the best way? Not, again, with the picture that you showed me earlier. Not, not in the short run, in the long run. Um, because right now we're sort of like just taking it one step at a time. Oh, we can do this with them, then let's do that. Okay, but, but what in 50 years? What, what, where does that get us when we start doing that with them. That's very abstract said, but yeah. Let's see. So, moving a little bit back, mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so, I'm an engineer. Mm -hmm. I don't know very much about philosophy. I'm assuming some people don't either. <laughs> Would you tell me a little bit about what kind of things you learn from studying philosophy? Yeah, I think uh, I think one of the interesting things about philosophy is that there are so many things to take away that if you ask two people, two philosophers, their totally answer is not going to be the same always. And there are the stereotypical philosophers, you know, with a beard, scratching it and talking and, <laughs> and quotes all yeah. the time, exactly. And then there's people like me who just, you know, can't even rem remember what Kant said, and it's horrible. <laughs> um, and but but philosophy basically teaches you to you know um, look for the source of things, mm -hmm. um, you know ask for it you know why why it's a it's a cliche but you know the why you know why does it work like this and then well it works like this well why does that work like this and why and you know it's very annoying and I think sometimes that's why philosophers get a bad rep because we like keep saying but why 
Um, but it's because we have this love of, of wanting to know like the inner workings of things because when we do that, when we crack that nut, things on the surface make so much more sense sometimes. Um, and it, and it, it, yeah, it, it, for me that gives me a rush. I, I hope it does for other philosophers as well. Um, okay. I think, yeah. And then, how, so how do you approach things more like a philosopher? You just keep asking why? Is there anything else? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> no, that would be hard. Five, five hard years of a bachelor and master's and I just learned to say why. Um, no, of course, there are methods and, the, and there's traditions. And, and again, I'm not the best student there. I don't have like, but it's... Well, I mean, for you, mm-hmm. I guess. Like, how, how is it taught you to approach things? Well, it's 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 taught me like about my own biases, of course. Like, okay, these implicit, implicit um, assumptions that I make. Like, okay, um, so I assume. Well, no, the world is like this, and then I can already look at the situation or the sentence and say, well, in saying that the world is like this, then I'm actually discarding that it could be in this way or I'm assuming something else like I'm assuming that there is an I in that sentence to be like old <laughs> Descartes about that but 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 really it's an interesting way of, of looking at it so there are so many things that we assume when we're concluding something and 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 philosophy especially teaches you to tease out these implicit assumptions that there are in arguments so like formal logic and how you make an argument and I think so Argumentation, of course, is also a strength of most philosophers, again, um, because we're taught this, you know, okay, you have this argument, um, and, and you've posted, like, two arguments, and then you make this conclusion. But let's see. In this argument, you actually have three implicit assumptions that you need to justify before you can make that part conclusion that will become the premise of your next Blah blah blah. So so in that way, and that's again why we get this bad rep of being critical and naysayers. But I, I don't really think that we are that. I, I think more like we are. Well, at least in my opinion, just really keen on making those assumptions or conclusions work. Because when we can finally conclude something, ah, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh yeah. Like the feeling of, and I think that's why we also write papers with a lot of footnotes because everything is in the footnotes. You know, we need to cover our back, so to speak. Like I said this, but you know, you need to remember that. Of course, there are these instances where this is not true, but in these instances, it is, and I'm only focusing on that. And then blah blah blah, and then you know, but it's it's so in this instance, you know, when the moon is right and there's only two wolves in Canada, then the argument is true, and you know, but it's I love that kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what are the next steps in your work? Where are you headed from here? <clears throat> well, um, the account that I have of novelty, which I call experiential novelty, to like stress that it's, it's the experience of novelty that counts, uh, I would really like to, to get that. Um, it's only tentative right now, and there's so much, again, there's so much psychology work here that I need to do. Uh, and of course also sense-making because basically I'm, t- I'm saying that novelty effects are sense-making activities and right now I'm working from a very intuitive uh, understanding of sense-making so I need to like really get into that what is it and also in order to be able to demonstrate really how how that can be helpful for HRI research as well because the talk that I 
just had, I was like, we need to take into account novelty effects. And people come up to me all the time, but how? And I'm like, I don't know yet, <laughs> but please just, you know, please just, I can say to one of the things actually that we can do is like right now we're looking at output. We're looking at, we have the setting, we have this robot, we have the situation, we have this interaction. Uh, let's measure what the output, the emotional, the attitudinal, the responses are. And then we look at the output. But and there is a tendency, I might say, I'm not the only one saying this, but I, there is a growing tendency and I would really um, fight a battle for that. Um, we need to look at what happens from the situation to the output. What made the output the way it is? Why do people respond? What kind of cues in the situation made them respond in that way? What kind of, of affordances in the interaction with the robot made them retrieve this kind of knowledge instead of this kind of knowledge to rely on when they were interacting with the robot? Um, because I think that's where the interesting things are. And also, again, if we want to get ethical about it and say, well, we don't want people to respond in this way unfortunately we see that people do well what kind of parameters can we change what kind of of cues can we modulate here to like gently push them in another response direction um so it's not enough just to look at the outputs and say okay well and then that's it that's how it is thank you uh, thank you <laughs>